another great episode of the Cross Border Interview Podcast. If you don't know by now, my name is Christopher Brown and I will be your host today. Since the launch of the podcast, I've been asked the same thing. Why do you do this? And I give everyone the exact same answer. This podcast is about talking to people in an intimate setting and just having a discussion. Today, we often find ourselves becoming keyboard warriors and have forgotten the lost art of having a conversation. So with that in mind, I started this podcast to achieve one goal, get people talking again with no notes, no questions. I sit down with subjects to learn from them about them. Today, we continue our special series of episodes with the Green Party of Canada leadership candidates. Today, I sit down with Judy Green. Judy and I talk about her military service, her unique background, and how she envisions leading the Green Party of Canada. So with that, here now is Cross Border Interviews featuring Judy Green. Take this moment right now and thank you very much for sitting down and doing this right off the bat. Why, thank you very much for having me. I always love the opportunity to talk with people who are interested in Canadian politics. Yes. Um, I, I usually would jump into uh, my first question, but as uh, as the only candidate from Nova Scotia, I want to take this time and uh, talk to you about what's been going on in Nova Scotia over the last few weeks uh, and just get your sense of how everyone's doing in Nova Scotia. So for my listeners who are uh, hearing this right now, we are recording this in uh, the middle of May, just after the long weekend in May. Um, earlier this weekend, uh A snowbird uh, crashed in Kelowna, B.C., killing the captain. Uh, She was from Nova Scotia. Earlier this earlier last month, uh, a downed helicopter uh, in Greece was carrying six military men and women uh, from Nova Scotia as well. And then the mass shooting in Nova Scotia earlier last month. Um, Judy, from an Albertan's perspective and asking this to a Nova Scotian, How are people doing in Nova Scotia today? Well, first off, thank you very much for acknowledging the loss that we have uh, had one upon another. Uh, As uh, somebody had just just, uh, said recently, and I thought this was just so apropos, our blue noses are just a little bloodied right now. Uh, so Nova Scotians are feeling the hit. Uh, you know, in Nova Scotia, we're such close-knit community. You know, they talk about seven degrees of separation. But in Nova Scotia, it's usually at most two, maybe three, if, if you're come here by chance. So it's um, it's really hit hard. And for myself personally, we have friends who personally know the people who have been involved in, in uh, all three incidents. And being a former service member and coming from a, a military family where our son is still serving in the military, the two military connections have hit us very hard through our military family as well. But Nova Scotians are tough and we know how to come together and we're finding a way to do it without being able to take casseroles and give hugs. But we're being very, very creative and a couple of things that are coming out of the tragedies and you know the the situation with covid as well is that people are coming together and creating these caremongering groups which are amazing where we're making sure we're looking after those in our community that may be on their own such as seniors who may be in their homes alone or people who are uh, more at risk for catching COVID-19 and we making sure that um, that they're cared for, that they have food delivered to them, uh, that their medicines delivered to them and these sorts of things. And this 
is all from the ground up. This is grassroots at its best. And, you know, that's something that the Green Party has in common with Nova Scotians is that we're all about, uh, you know, stepping up and doing things as individuals that collectively have a bigger impact. And we've also got something um, which I if your listeners haven't been on Facebook uh, to see the um, I think it's called the Real Nova Scotia Kitchen Party. I was actually going to ask you about that. (laughs) I am discovering that friends in this neighborhood are immensely talented. They've been hiding it, but now, but now they're they're sharing that talent with all of us. And actually, I just my husband's absolute favorite song is called "Sunny's Dream," and um, a a local talented um, amateur um, singer sang it on on uh, the kitchen party last night, and I had to share it with him this morning, so he woke up to that this morning <laughs> well that's awesome I, I got introduced by that by a uh, uh, a friend of mine who actually comes from Nova Scotia and she's living up north in Alberta right now as some uh, Nova Scotians do and some Maritimers uh-huh. do they leave and they come back but she uh, she sent me the link and I've, I've I found it a sil- sort of a silver lining during this whole COVID-19 uh, pandemic absolutely absolutely you know that's a lot of the ways that, you know, we're a, um, a seafaring people, and historically there have been rough patches. Uh, fishery can be very, very dangerous work to do, and the families that are left at home are often left wondering uh, what's happened. And, uh, you know, in the last hundred years, we've gotten a whole lot better with technology and communication, but prior to that, there was a whole lot of just worrying about what would happen. And we all come together, and we come together with music, and we come together with food, and uh, there's a lot to be a lot to be learned from that across the board because none of us are, are uh, going through this alone um, our own or each of our experiences will be different but it is a shared experience and even just COVID-19 alone and the habits new habits that are forming these are going to be with us many of them for a very long time and it's going to be very interesting to see what our worldwide society looks like as a result of what this shared experience is. No, understandable. But um, thank you very much for bringing us sort of a, a look upon what uh, Nova Scotians are feeling right now. So thank you very much. Um, so getting into the interview now, though, and this would usually be my first question, but uh, with everything else that just happened, it's not. Um, Judy, where does your sense of duty come from? Hmm. That's very interesting. I I think it really comes from my family. Uh, We've been service oriented my whole life. My mom teases that the first volunteer job I had was taking tickets at the Teen Town Dance um, in the Okanagan that she she organized. (laughs) And that would have been in the 60s. So um, and my first um, official volunteer position, I was 11 years old in Winnipeg and I was the junior um, the junior vice president of the Junior Humane Society. And that was a title that was uh, longer than I was tall at the time (laughs) so uh, when people ask me well well, what have you volunteered and I'm like how many pages do I have to squeeze that onto because I usually have two or three different things going and it really comes from just looking around and seeing where the need is and then looking at what your skills are and seeing where you can apply that and just to make things a little bit better okay so um, when doing research upon uh, yourself uh, I know you were born in BC uh, mm-hmm. uh, you now live in Nova Scotia, but you just said Winnipeg. So you lived in Winnipeg yes. as well. Oh, I've been in. I've lived and worked in five provinces. Yes, Wh- which are what? I started in BC. Yep. And then uh, my my mother and um, 
my sisters and I moved to Winnipeg. And then when I was 13, we moved back, or 14, we moved back to BC. And then I moved to Calgary, where I uh, was recruited with the military. Um, Then, of course, Cornwallis and then Borden, Ontario for training. And then I was stationed to Edmonton, uh, CFB Nemeo at the time. And uh, then um, I met my husband there. He's from Nova Scotia. And we were uh, then transferred to Shearwater in Nova Scotia and then transferred to uh, to Greenwood. And then I finished my undergrad and started my master's, transferred my master's to Ottawa uh, at Carleton University. I worked in high tech there where he um, was stationed to Petawawa at the time. So we had a bit of a commute. Um, just a little. <laughs> yeah, just a little. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's been an interesting, interesting life. And then when my father died, uh, three days after I defended my master's thesis, uh, and my mom uh, and I decided that it was time that I came back where my family was, my sisters and my mom, which is Alberta. And so we moved back to Red Deer and then we were in Lacombe and Rimby and we were there, I think about eight years, eight, no, 12 years. And then uh, we have my mom passed on we moved back to uh, Nova Scotia where my husband's family is so we've we've been kind of bouncing back and forth between his family and my family um, a little bit since we uh, since we got together 30 ooh, how many years 37 to be 38 years this year so there's a lot to unpack there but we'll we'll start yeah. <laughs> there is a huge you, you have a history of this across this country because literally one of, my, one of my questions later on will fit perfectly into what you just said um um, what made you, you said you were recruited by the Canadian uh, military. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. What do you mean by that? So did you actually go seek out or did they seek out you? Oh, no, I, I, sec- I seeked them out or sought them out. Yeah. Um, yes. No, I would have been 17 at the time and I turned 18 uh, in the military and um, my father had been an aero engine tech. Okay. And my mother had been a radar operator just after the Second World War. And uh, so I joined as airframe because that was my little rebellion because there's a bit of uh, of rivalry, friendly rivalry between airframe and aero engine at that time. And, um, of course, the trades have changed somewhat since then. There's been an amalgamation of them, which my husband went through. Um, and so uh, I was one of the very few first trickle of women in those non-traditional trades in the military uh, going in as a, as a mechanic and uh, like that came from early on too like my dad wouldn't wouldn't uh, agree to me even having a car unless I bought it fixed it up myself before he'd even teach me how to drive it so I knew how to fix a car before I knew how to drive one wow so uh, I got to ask them a basic question. How does a military uh, personnel decide to run for the Green Party of Canada? Usually <laughs> you would consider. Uh, so in 2019, you decided to put your name forward for the Green Party of Canada's uh, uh, West, uh, West Nova. West Nova. Yeah. West Nova. Uh, uh, electoral EDA. district EDA mm-hmm. in uh, mm-hmm. Nova Scotia. So how does a military brass decide to run for the Green Party because traditionally when you think of military you would think maybe they would be more aligned with the conservatives because they're more military friendly as they quote unquote <laughs> so how does how does how do you decide I'm going to 
leave military, leave the military, and then go into politics because you know oh. they're 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 kind of the same thing. <laughs> well, it's it's quite funny because I, I never planned to be a politician, and and truth is that I had to really sit with that word and be comfortable with it and redefine it uh, in terms that worked for me. And the Green Party allowed me to do that. Um, but you're right, coming from a military background, it's very hierarchical. It's very a top-down organizational structure. And there are reasons for that. Um, it, it has gotten more um, user-friendly in recent years in that um, members can now have more voice than they, they did before. But when I was in, it was definitely you do what your superiors tell you to do, and that's it. And you shut up in the meantime. But that has changed. Um, as I grew, as we all do, and I, I became more... Um, my own person and found my way in the world. Um, my my perspectives broadened and working in high tech in um, you know the startups in Ottawa uh, as a, a software engineer working on, on open source and object oriented software, I had the opportunity to really work with a lot of groups that were in more of a, a pancake or flat architecture, not not hierarchical. Yeah. And I found the power of harnessing the individual. So the sum of the parts, uh, the whole is much more than the sum of the parts. And uh, that really fascinated me. And that's actually what my, my master's thesis was written on, was growing and maintaining highly effective groups and teaching software engineers those soft skills that um, stereotypically many don't have coming into that industry. Um, it was well received. And I actually had the opportunity to, to write and have paper Papers accepted at international conferences, including Uppsala, in, which is object-oriented systems programming and languages in, uh, and applications in um, Vancouver in 98, and at Java One in San Francisco wow. in 2001. And I also had the paper accepted, and my co-author, um, my professor at the time, presented it at Frontiers in Education. So that was an amazing opportunity to be able to speak to my peers, uh, 10,000 of, of them at <laughs> Java One, which was my first um, opportunity to address that many people. Uh, so that's, uh, in an odd, strange, backhanded way, has given me uh, skills and experiences that are perfectly suited for what I'm doing right now. So what may, what was the final decision for you running in 2019 for, that, uh, for West Nova and for the Green Party? Well, it's interesting because I really only got involved with uh, the Green Party about a year before that. I had um, reached out to the, the provincial Greens a few years before that, but hadn't realized that they were in the middle of a near-death experience when the uh, the Green Party of Nova Scotia um, was almost disbanded. So I had reached out during that time, and of course there wasn't anyone available to reach out. So when I reached out in, in uh, 2018, I uh, was put in contact with our, our regional representative representative, who is Sheila um, Richardson, who's been with the Green Party for a very long time. And she was amazing. So I started working with her and we started getting things organized on the provincial level. And then, of course, the we knew that the federal was coming up. And uh, what traditionally happens in this area is that the volunteers wear both the federal and the provincial hats. And so they bounce back and forth. And as our elections go, it's been roughly two years, every two years. So either federal or provincial every two years. And so they were gearing up for that. There was nobody organizing in West Nova. 
So I stepped up to do that, um, fully expecting to work on someone else's campaign because I have no campaign experience. But nobody stepped forward and nobody stepped forward. And the time was getting short and nobody stepped forward. And try as we might, nobody stepped forward. So on the 13th of June, uh, I was acclaimed and we, we hit the ground running which was um, quite an interesting experience. Uh, we really didn't have, uh, we started from scratch is what we did here in West Nova and we learned a lot. Uh, we built our team, we raised money, we um, made gains in that had never been made before in West Nova. We, uh, in previous years, the most we'd ever garnered in terms of votes was 4.1%, and that was four years ago, and we took that vote to 12.69%. We came in third, uh, which had never happened in, Nova, in West Nova, and we won the student vote, for which I'm extremely proud. I loved love my students. <laughs> um, you... <laughs> Traditionally, you don't see a big uh, green population in uh, Nova Scotia. They do not have, like you say, elected MLA, uh, MLAs in the legislature there. Um, when you were door knocking, did you get a sense that people were open to voting green? Well, it, it's interesting because we did our door knocking a little differently than a traditional way. And that really sits well with me. I've never never liked the, the model of show up on someone's doorstep and tell them what you're going to do for them and, and, and kind of bully them into into saying, yes, they're going to vote for you. Um, that I've, I've experienced that on the other end as a voter, don't like it. So what we did is a listening campaign where we had a list of, of issues that I know are on people's minds as well as the opportunity to add additional ones. And we would show up on the doorstep and we'd say hi. Um, in my case, I'd say, hi, I'm Judy, and I'm going to be running for uh, to represent you here in West Nova as your, your MP in Ottawa. And I want to know what's important to you. So I have a, a, an idea of what some of the top issues are, but if you could maybe rank them for me, and if there's any that were missing, could you add them? And I would turn the clipboard around and hand the pencil to them. And it was wonderful because people engaged with us and we were, had a conversation two-way where we were listening and we were able to, to uh, be able to show them that we had green policies for every issue that they brought forward to us. And that actually was a, a point of pride for me, that our policies are have a huge breadth that the Canadian population is not aware of. And that's something that I will uh, put processes in place and training in place so that our people on the ground in the EDAs and doing the campaigns are better able to uh, talk to the people at the door, our constituents, and um, show them that we have solutions to the problems that are top of their mind. So before we get into that, um, so the 2019 election happened. Uh, like you said, you uh, the Greens came in third in West Nova. You were uh, defeated by, you were running against a sitting MLA at the time and also a sitting MP. Um, Chris Udremont did win that riding. The Conservative for uh, the, 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 I, I, the Conservative who was the MLA, who is now the MP. Um, and then that election... After the election, there was rumblings that there was going to potentially be a leadership election. Uh, Elizabeth May might step down, but then she announced it. Was your decision mm -hmm. easy to jump into the leadership election? No, no, it wasn't. Um, 
but it kind of evolved from doing the postmortem on our own campaign to see what worked, what didn't. You know, there's a lot of things that we could have done a lot better. And we know and have a plan in place to work on those between elections now so that we're not starting from scratch each time. And that's a big part of what we need to do across Canada. And But in talking to other campaigns about their experiences, we really started to see the same issues coming up, the same challenges, and that there were ways that the party could support the EDAs a whole lot better than they are. So there was some internal structural uh, stuff going on. And then I worked with uh, a group of grassroots Greens to put forward our findings and, and suggestions to our federal council, which is the elected group that um, run the governance of the Green Party, which is a little bit different structurally than other parties, I understand. And then once that, through that process, uh, people had been coming up with ideas and names that they thought, oh, we, we should get them to lead the Green Party or we should get them to lead the Green Party. And the names that they were coming up with were mostly people who weren't Greens, who were doing wonderful things in their area of expertise, but they weren't Green Party members. They weren't even necessarily political. And I was very concerned that we would end up with a cult of personality rather than looking at, well, you know, I'm a software engineer, so I'm always looking at uh, at systems and processes, and, and that's what we need to strengthen within our party right now in order to be able to get the message across. So I'm really running on an internal reorganization and revitalization of the party if, if there's any platform, because the Green Party leader really is a spokesperson for the party, and the members determine the policy not the leader. So um, if there's any kind of platform, it would be on revitalizing our membership and uh, reinvigorating our grassroots um, and moving us into the position that we need in order to make the gains that we are fully capable of making in the next election. So it was, um, yeah, so I have to tell you, though, that the first time that I kind of vetted this with, with friends and saying, you know, what do you think of this? I fully expected them to tell me, Judy, you haven't been in the party for very long. You know, are you crazy? And instead I got, yes, heck yes, <laughs> and, and very enthusiastic support. So we've been building on that moving forward as well. So why does why do you make the best candidate for that? Why, why is Judy Green the best person to lead the party to that restructure, to reorganize, to help those grassroots supporters? Why is Judy Green the best candidate for the leadership? Excellent question. <laughs> um, and I actually struggled with this at the very first because, um, you know, there's a lot of amazing candidates stepping forward and they all have their strengths. And my concern is, is that um, I'm not seeing the level of understanding of, of what's going on internally or the the background to be able to see and structure what's going to fix it. Um, also, we need to have a leader who really does envision what the future needs to look like. And because that's how the Green Party policies are all designed. They're not a four-year Band-Aid fix. They are a, it's called upstream thinking, where you, you go up the stream to see what the what is causing the problem and you fix the actual root cause. And the solutions to those, especially with, with social uh, equity 
security issues aren't going to be solved in four years. They are long term and they have to be put in place with a vision and a, a plan to get you there. And that's something that I excel at. Um, that kind of, of process thinking, that kind of visioning. It's actually what I've been teaching um, as, as a, a coach here in, in Nova Scotia with my young um, rural entrepreneurs. It is um, a way of of really working backwards from from and all, all my process folks and the people who are our uh, project managers and stuff are going yes she gets it um, because I have that that experience I'm not a, a professional politician but I can speak on any topic that anyone puts in front of me and uh, am perfectly capable of saying you know I don't have a depth of knowledge in that area but I will look into it and I'll get back to you because nobody can know absolutely everything about anything and anyone who tells you per- they are perfect are lying to you <laughs> because we're all works in process Judy and- you're, you're blowing my mind you're not a politician you can't say that <laughs> okay. welcome to my world <laughs> it's called reality um, and as, as they say I won't blow smoke um it's just really, really important for people to understand, too, like even our, our young people who may be thinking about getting into politics, that you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be a plastic person, that you are a human being. Human beings learn best from their past experiences and mistakes. Making a mistake is just an opportunity to learn. You try to avoid them, <laughs> but, you know, you truly do. You, you plan for that. But, you know, sometimes that happens. You can only do the best you can with what you know at the time. When you, As Maya Angelou says, when you know better, you do do better. And and you'll hear me say that one a lot because there's so much of that happening on so many topics right now. We truly do know better. The time for, you know, investigating or doing more studies for guaranteed livable income or the transition to renewables um, or any number of other topics is past. That investigation, that evaluation has been done to the nth degree is backed by science and is clear paths forward, sometimes several of them. So there's still some wiggle room to have have some political discussions on on, uh, what the priorities need to be. But we all have to have that same vision, whether it's within the party or within parliament, if we're going to get Canada through the challenges that we're facing, which has only been made more challenging because of COVID-19. And you know, COVID-19 is almost like a, a practice run for societal change that will be either done um, because of climate change, will be either done on our terms or on the planet's terms, because you cannot negotiate with nature. You cannot negotiate with Mother Earth, which is what people are, are learning from this this um, virus right now. So before we get into some policy questions here, because I will hold you to account, if you're willing to talk about anything, I'm going to throw a few policy questions at you. But uh, before we do that, um, how does the Green Party under your leadership or under any leadership uh, at this moment, but under your leadership, keep the voters it's connected to? In its party. One of the big things with the Green Party of Canada is they do extremely well at the beginning of any campaign. They're expected to win five, eight, ten. Even the last election, there was potentially like talk of 12 to 20 seats. But as the elections roll on, you get closer to that final vote. 
Canadians start to go, I want to vote for the Green, but I have to be strategic in my riding because I don't want the Liberals. I don't want the NDP. I don't want the Conservatives. So I have to be strategic. So how do you keep those strategic voters in the Green base under a Judy Green leadership? <laughs> that is an excellent question. <laughs> Proportional representation would be number one. Yes. But, but it, until we get there, and we will, but until we get there, it really is about... Um, Having these conversations with voters and gaining their trust, you know, people have lost, um, they've lost confidence and they don't trust their, their politicians. They don't trust their government. And that's a problem across all the parties. And the biggest thing that the Greens can do is actually grow, grow our vote, which means get more people out to the to the voting stations. And the way we do that is by just like you do in in business is that you have to build relationships with people. They have to trust you and you have to be absolutely um, ethical to retain that trust. And that means not lying to them. It means saying, yeah, we're not perfect sometimes, but we're doing the best we can with what we have right now. This is where we want to go, but we may have to only, you know, take the first few steps because that's what's going to be palatable. Uh, So you have to be honest with people. And, uh, you know, once people start, like, there was this amazing thing that happened in, in our riding, and that was as people started to show their pride in that they were voting green, we would have one sign pop up, then we'd have a cluster of signs. Um, people wanted to vote green. They wanted to share that they were voting green, but they were, were worried about the backlash from family and friends. So. Once you start to get that critical mass of people who are proud to be green and proud of those those policies and are able to, you know, discuss them with, with their families and friends. And that's a big part of what we can do as the Green Party is educate people on some of these issues. We're going to be holding town halls in our, our local EDA to educate people on proportional representation, on um, forestry, on fisheries, you know, the challenging uh, portfolios that are right here in Nova Scotia, but also on things like uh, what we call guaranteed livable income, which is a version of um, universal basic income. But but at a livable level and the pros and cons of that and uh, to really educate because you can't can't you know get that those concepts across on the four minutes or ten minutes that you have on a doorstep or as my, my volunteers would say a whole lot more than that they keep trying to get me <laughs> to cut down my time on doorsteps um, but it's it's really important to gain back that trust so people can trust that yes they want to vote green there's lots of other people who want to vote green too uh, we have to get away from voting for the least worst option, which is what we've been doing in Canadian politics. One of the things that I try to explain to people on the doorstep here in West Nova is that it's really, really important to look at what your top priorities are. What are the issues that are most important to you? And then ask each of the candidates in your riding what their positions are on those issues. And then make the best choice, the one that aligns best with you. I had somebody once tell me that um, uh, politics or choosing a a party or or voting is like um, choosing a an itinerary to get you to uh, where you want to go. Rarely are you going to be able to take a train that's going to take you right to the doorstep of where you're going, but you choose the one that gets you the closest. And so that's really what you need to do. But it, it means that individuals really need to look at what's important to them and then know what their local representatives, what their positions are, because 
we always think in terms of who we're um, voting for the leader, but the person that's going to have the most impact on you is the person who's representing you in your riding. And so it's really, really important that you make the best choice locally. Well, I think that's the uh, one misconception about Canadian politics. People think you're electing a prime minister, right? You are electing a prime minister to govern. No, you're not. You were electing a local MP and the majority of MPs will then appoint their leader, their prime minister in some sense. Exactly, exactly. And so it's a a little bit of educating. Yeah. So the other question I want to talk about is how do you win over new voters? Because there are staunch conservatives, staunch staunch liberals. There are staunch NDPers, Bloc Quebecois. And then there's the swing voters, the swing voters Mm -hmm. who will go back and forth and back and forth. But you need Mm -hmm. to connect with them. And that talking, you you say you need to connect with them via talking. That's great. But in the day of COVID-19... You're not going to be able to go to every doorstep anymore. So how do you connect with people in a way that you say, you know what? We aren't a traditional party. We aren't that one issue party that everyone thinks the Green Party of Canada is. Exactly, exactly. Well, you know, I think everybody's having to, to rethink how we do things in general, whether that's our work or, or politics. You know, even even with our um, leadership uh, contest, we're having to rethink and we've gone online and, and, you know, you go on my website, judyngreen.ca, and our events page will, will have all sorts of, of virtual events that you can uh, register for and join us and ask questions and have a conversation like uh, you and I are doing right now, Chris. And so we need to really look at that. Um, but it's also, you know, we're moving into a digital age. And I think uh, some parties have done this better than others. We need to be looking at uh, our messaging coming from our national office, it being consistent, it being reusable and customizable for each of the contestants or, or candidates in each of the EDAs, so that we can use our membership, which is about 22,000 people right now, to distribute that message out on social media so that we're not relying on the traditional ways of advertising, but that we're actually using the social media, um, all the different platforms to get our message out and empowering our membership in, in doing that as well. It's uh, We kind of have to make our own media channel <laughs> in a way. You know, if, if, uh, if we're not um, controversial enough that we're making the headlines, uh, then we have to get our message out uh, in a unique way. And we have the technology to do that now. And I'm finding we have amazing depth of skill uh, in our volunteers who are just waiting to sink their teeth into projects like this. So one of the ways that you're connecting with people is through your podcast, Mm -hmm. Green Tea with Judy. Yes. How's that going? It's going well. Uh, we've uh, kind of played around with with uh, branding, and uh, we're kind. Of, it's kind of a, between green tea with Judy and meet and greets. Um, I've been so busy with meet and greets, which are set up and and hosted by local uh, greens in different areas across uh, Canada. We actually just had one. Uh, where are we in the week here yet? Yeah, we had one Tuesday. last week. Uh, yeah, okay, thank you. I lose track of days. Anyone else have that issue? Yeah. Welcome to the uh, club. I had COVID for two weeks and it just completely threw me for oh, a loop. No, would it ever? Oh, I'm so glad to hear that you're doing well. I'm yes. sorry I didn't know about that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, that's that's horrid. Um, but I'm sorry. I'm sure you have stories to tell. <laughs> uh, 
Um, but we're, we're organizing that for local groups of Greens who uh, want to have topical uh, questions. And of course, in Alberta, uh, we had uh, very specific questions coming with, from our, our Alberta Greens, which was wonderful. And that gives us the opportunity to speak to green and green-minded people all across Canada with the issues that are important to them in their area and the challenges that they have that are specific to the um, political environment in which they are operating. And it's been amazingly informative and uh, so much fun meeting so many people. But we do our green tea with Judy as well, which is uh, uh, informal and just allows anybody to uh, jump on the call. And we started streaming that on Facebook on um, my campaign page as well. And it's uh, it's it's been really good. It's been awesome. I've been really enjoying it. And uh, right now we're getting uh, it's hard booking in dates <laughs> because we're getting like next week between uh, the, the grassroots led joint leadership uh, 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 kind of they're kind of doing like speed dating, which is kind of fun format. Um on two different days, one in French and one in English, and um, the other ones that are slotting in before and after. I've got I'm double booked on some days, so that I've got two ev- two events going on the same day. Uh, but we're getting more and more of them up and available uh, as recordings, so that people can can kind of watch and see what goes on. And we're we're informal. We're not uh, um, all hair and makeup and stuff like that. I am who I am. What you see is what you get with me. So <laughs> Awesome. And for those who, who are listening, uh, the link to Judy's uh, uh, website and to her Facebook page are in the show notes. So when you're uh, looking at the show notes, if you just scroll down there, the two links will be there for you to go peruse her policies and get uh, connected with Judy as well. Um, so... Let, let, let's 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 hit the topic that uh, most people want to talk about now policy everyone everyone's a policy wonk in my mind right everyone loves talking <laughs> policy greens especially i have never met so many policy wonks it's wonderful <laughs> i agree uh like the policy conversations i've had with you and your fellow con- uh, contenders it's been amazing so um judy what are you hearing at the quote-unquote virtual doorstep now in uh, during this campaign. Wow. Well, I mean, a lot of people are are looking at what what's what what's Canada going to look like post COVID. You know, we've uh, I don't know if, if your listeners are familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but uh, you know, um, poli- politics and partisanship are kind of at the top of the pyramid. Uh, right now, we've kind of been thrown back down to security, safety, uh, income. Can I feed my family? Can I keep a roof over the head? And those are really really critical moving forward. So we really are are pulling out those policies when we're talking to people, you know, the, the policies that we have on um, genuine progress indicators, uh, which are, are typically uh, associated with wellness economies uh, versus uh, GDP, because right now GDP really is irrelevant uh, to determine growth or health of, of our society, because we are in an unprecedented um, economic situation. Uh, we have to make sure that our people come first, that and that we're not ravaging the planet uh, while we build our economy back up. And this is a unique opportunity to really uh, correct uh, issues that have been highlighted by the breakdown of of our structure because of COVID-19. Things like our supply chains being so global 
for items that are critical, uh, wh whether that be uh, personal protective um, uh, equipment or food. You know, it's making a lot of people look more closely at, at um, making sure that we have the capacity in our manufacturing to retool and to produce critical equipment uh, and scale up that production when necessary. Uh, you know, that the climate scientists are telling us that this is not the first type of, of virus that, that's going to cause pandemics, because as we're encroaching on our natural world, that connection between humanity and the natural world is being closer and closer, and we're only going to be seeing more of these. So we need to be able to uh, kind of future-proof um, the, the economy as we move forward. We need to be looking at uh, a more local food production. I, I will always remember I was uh, in PEI during the last provincial election. I did some campaigning for them. And um, Peter Bevan Baker was speaking at a ecological forum with the other leaders, uh, provincial leaders. And I loved what he said. He says, it makes absolutely no sense that we're producing potatoes here on PEI. And as those potatoes are leaving PEI over the bridge, another truck is coming and passes them that's bringing potatoes into PEI. Uh, we have to kind of be... <sighs> looking at how smart our, our production chains are and uh, doing things a little bit um, more organized or encouraging that. I mean, that's not something that you can or should be um, controlling at a governmental level, but I think at a societal level, we need to kind of rethink those things a little bit better. And the government may be able to um, be able to connect to suppliers and um and the buyers a little more efficiently so that we can make sure that that local suppliers and local buyers kind of have first dibs on on production and then the surplus is is shipped um, elsewhere so you know we really are, are looking at some of those things every time uh, this whole situation's kind of been an observation for me, going, okay, well, that's illustrating why that's not working. That's illustrating why that's not working, why this policy is better for it. So, I mean, we can bring up CERB, which I, I don't. Actually, I applaud um, the Liberals' decision to work fast with what they already had in place in order to get money into the hands of the average Canadian and as many of them as possible through CERB. Was it perfect? Absolutely not. Did they expect it to be perfect? Perfect? Um, no, they did not. They knew that they were going to have to be patching holes. But that patching holes really is illustrative of our thinking in terms of our whole social safety net because even the existing social safety net people fall through it. And there are disincentives for, for people getting off of it because we claw back money too fast and, and make it um, so that they are risking losing that little security if they try something that doesn't work. So, and then there's the punitive side uh, where people are, are the enforcement. And we spend a lot of money on enforcement uh, that really isn't that effective. And it um, is all of that. All of that is coming out in the discussions around CERB and how the rhetoric right now is that, well, you know, um, I, it, it's bizarre because they're saying that um, we don't have enough um, temporary foreign workers coming across the border. So the people on CERB should be stepping up to, to work in the fields and not understanding that those temporary foreign workers actually are skilled workers. Working on a farm is not, um, 
you have to have some skills in doing that. You have to have a physical ability to work. That's very hard work. Uh, we have to have uh, mechanisms of getting local people to those farms, which tend to be remote, and the people who are in the position where they are um, looking at those lower income jobs often don't have their own vehicle. So they're re- relying on public transportation that does not exist in rural areas, and people who don't who live in the cities think it's available everywhere. It's not. So those are all problems that we haven't solved pre-COVID. Why are we going to solve them right now by shaming people into uh, working in an environment that they're ill-suited, not trained, and can't get to. It's, it doesn't make sense. Uh, and so this whole red, and there has been pushback, a lot of pushback for those politicians that have used terms such as lazy and uh, fraudulent uh, of people who are taking, um, who are stepping up and, and getting these government programs that initially were there so that they could stay home and flatten the curve. And now, you know, it's going to be tricky how we restart the economy right now in terms of uh, what comes first, step by step. You know, I, I've looked into opening, I, I ran a community kitchen here, and so I looked at at opening a little cafe, and you have, have to have a certain number of, of chairs that are full in your space in order to be able to, to make that a viable business. And so by reducing the number of people that businesses can serve, their fixed costs are still in place, which makes it really challenging for them to be able to cover their costs, never mind make uh, a profit um, or even pay themselves in the case of many small and medium-sized businesses. So it's it's going to be really, really tricky. There will have to be government uh, supports to get us through this transition back into, and, and it's not going to be a one-time, you know, if anyone's read the paper, The Hammer and the Dance, we know that we're going to be dancing with this virus and as the, the, the numbers come up, as we loosen our restrictions, then we're going to have to close down again and put the hammer down so that we can, can flatten that curve again. And that's going to happen until we have effective uh, treatments and or uh, vaccination, which is still quite quite a ways out, even though we're all excited about the, um, the, re- the trials, the clinical trials. And the reopening yeah. of uh, the, uh, the economy that people are now able to go shopping. People are mm-hmm. excited. And then, uh, and I hate to compare apples to oranges, but they look at the Spanish flu in 18, uh, 1918 and how the second wave spoke, spiked again. We don't know if that's going to happen this time. People are saying it's going to happen. We will see if it's going to happen. I would just hope, as someone who's gone through COVID, that people oh. take it serious and don't actually Absolutely. go out there and just wash away the work that we've done so far. Um, and, th- and, that, and that's the... the- the challenge right now it really really is because uh, people are going oh yeah let's go back to normal and, and people are habit driven and so they get back into that and they're going to go back to habits we all have to stay vigilant and be protecting each other and that's why you wear a mask so that you don't infect somebody else so it's it's important that we follow uh, the protocols by our our very um qualified uh, health experts exactly um you have mentioned a few things that I want to digest here. Um, you talked about um, using the things that we have. When you were talking uh-huh. about potatoes, how PEI was shipping potatoes out, and then people uh-huh. were shipping potatoes in. Um, uh-huh. I wouldn't be a true Albertan without asking this question. <laughs> 
We have a surplus of oil in Alberta, which uh, oh. our current premier, if you listen to him, wants to get to all parts of Canada, but mm-hmm. we can't because we need pipelines and there's some obstacles around pipelines. Mm-hmm. Um, as a potential leader of the Green Party of Canada, what is Judy Green's position on using Alberta's resources in Canada to fuel our economy? We're, we shouldn't be buying Saudi Arabia's oil or other people's oil. We should be using the oil that we have here, correct? Or what is your opinion? That last sentence, I totally, absolutely uh, agree with you. And that's actually in our plan, Mission Possible, which was from the last election, where the first step was to stop importing oil, especially from um, countries that have questionable human rights um, uh, history. So uh, and we have we have Alberta, we have Hibernia. So we have different qualities of, of oil throughout Canada. The transition will not happen overnight. And the the oil that is problematic is the oil that we're burning and releasing the carbon. So there's a lot of uh, petrochemical that's used for making all sorts of things. You know, it's questionable whether we shouldn't be having as much plastic and we'd like to see some transition away from petrochemicals um, and into things like hemp and, and other technologies. But in that transition, there will still be jobs, but we have to move as quickly as possible away from burning fossil fuels that releases that carbon. That carbon is what is fueling the climate crisis and we, that that has to be our our shared future vision goal and how we get there as quick as we can get there while making sure that workers have safe transitions and are not having the rug pulled out from underneath of them and i totally get you know <laughs> I've lived in Alberta for many years, have had three businesses that I've run there, including a software engineering firm that worked with small businesses uh, that supported uh, oil field uh, operations. So I understand that industry in a way that, that perhaps some of my other contestants, uh, fellow contestants do not. That it's not just the big international oil field companies. There's a lot of local companies that rely on that. But we have to be looking at ways of ensuring that they are transitioning to um, producing energy. An energy company is an energy company. Whether that energy is coming from oil or it's coming from other other uh, cleaner sources, that is the transition that we need to make. And we're seeing some of the larger companies starting to do that. Um, so it's just a matter of, of escalating that. You know, the reality is even before COVID-19 came around, the investors have been pulling out of the oil sands and other large oil and gas um, efforts in Alberta. And that's scary. That is really scary for those who whose livelihoods depend on that and who have built businesses up based on that. So we really need to be providing supports and, and, and sitting down and saying, okay, this is what you can do. How can that be transitioned so that you're not losing your business? Because that's not not the intent of anybody. We need to keep these businesses in place and, and these uh, people employed in, in things they're loving to do. But we have to stop digging stuff out of the ground and burning it. Or we are not going to have, you know, the opportunity to fix that. Uh, that's one of the things that really got me into politics was when the IPCC report came out in the fall of 2018. I realized we didn't have as much time as I had thought we did previous to that. And 
we have to keep our eye on that ball because, you know, I have this vision. It's, it's we need a political cartoonist to do this up for us here. But it's um, uh, human beings kind of pushing in mass um, over the edge or towards the edge of a cliff. And there's a few that are, are turning around and trying to fight the, 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 the crowd. Um, but our choice is, are we going to get pushed off that cliff of climate change and have uh, basically the rug pulled out from underneath of all of us as people also are losing their homes due to an increased flooding and um, increased uh, water level rise on, on our coastlines, of which Nova Scotia is like 68 kilometers away from, from the coastline and nowhere everywhere that you live in Nova Scotia, or are we going to uh, build a ramp so that we can land where we want to land? Like, so we have a choice. Are we going to be forced into being reactionary or are we going to be smart enough to plan a way out of this that is going to be best for the most number of people? Now, the counter argument to that is you've read that report. I've read that report 10 years ago, 20 years ago, Mm -hmm. 30 years ago. The right wing in Alberta will say that the Greens are just saying the sky is falling where they look at the result. They look at every day and they still see snow. They still see the cold weather. They still see minus 40, which they saw 30 years ago. So there is no difference. So what do you say to those people? Well, and that really illustrates, I see that here in Nova Scotia, too, that we have people who, who, and in Alberta, uh, when I lived there, there was uh, somebody in Rimby who had never even been to Wetaskiwin, and anybody who knows, like, they are spitting distance away. Um, <laughs> literally. So, literally, literally. So... Um, people live in their own little bubbles, you know, and and to varying degrees, we reach outside of those bubbles. So our reality is within our bubble. So if you're only looking in your bubble and you only see the snow and the rain and it comes and it goes and human the way our minds work, um, we um, don't equate things well we adapt we adapt all the time that's how human beings have survived on this planet we're highly adaptable Uh, and so this is a very slow process it doesn't even work with our our fight flight or freeze response because it's not an imminent crisis it's not clearly defined we don't know exactly who the enemy is and we don't know an easy simple way to fight it right Um, and all of those are, are explained in a really good book called don't even think about it uh, which is the the psychology of climate change. So uh, I highly recommend anyone reading that book uh, because it really does um, tie into our, our whole way of looking at the world, but also how we are, are physiologically designed to react. And so if you are not looking outside of the world, and uh, even with COVID-19, if you were in a small town that nobody in, in that community had, and you're seeing it already, no, uh, that nobody in that community has had the disease. Well, this was all, all a big hoofra-fra. You know, there's there's not, nothing to get excited about. It must have been all a big hoax, and yet the town over could be decimated. Um, but they're not looking at that. They're not seeing that. So people who are looking, and the scientists and the epidemiologists are looking at what's happening around the world, and they're looking at the timelines. And so when here in Canada, we can look at okay, well, what was happening in Italy? What was happening in Spain? in France, uh, we're this number of weeks behind them. We can expect a similar situation. Sorry, that's Cindy. <laughs> uh, sorry. Don't worry. My dog barked as well, so it's okay. 
<laughs> the joys of working from home. Um, yes, so we are. Um, oh, geez, and I even lost my train of thought there. <laughs> no, understandable. But mm-hmm. how? I, I think I already know what the answer to this question is. So we'll, we'll move on to the next question here. Um, how does Judy Green from Nova Scotia connect with people in Quebec? People in downtown uh, Montreal, people in downtown Toronto, Windsor, the outskirts of uh, Quartha Lakes, Winnipeg, Dolphin, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Lloydminster. How do you connect with people in unique cities? Because they are, Canada is such a vast uh, country. How does someone like yourself connect with everyday Canadians? And I hate using that term, but how do you connect with every Canadian in all walks of uh, all backgrounds? That's excellent. Uh, well, part of part of that is I have a kind of a step up because I've lived in so many different places, which has allowed me to understand that some of the diversity that exists across Canada. So now I kind of look at it like a kaleidoscope. Canada is not a melting pot. Canada is a kaleidoscope. And there are exciting things that you can learn about different people, their cultures, their worldviews. Uh, you know, we have uh, El Sitkuk, which is a First Nation community real close to us here um, in Clemensport. Nova Scotia and they're in Bear River and um, I have a number of friends um, who come from that community and it helps me to understand um, but you don't get that opportunity to have those connections with uh, like one person's not going to have that opportunity to connect at that level with everybody across uh, the country but our greens on the ground can you know our greens on the ground in the EDAs uh, one of the things I'm really working on is uh, building relationships with uh, communities and uh, racialized communities, um, indigenous communities, just different communities across Canada to help build leaders from within those communities, um, preferably green, green-minded green leaders. But we, we need leaders coming from uh, a diverse background across the nation. And we aren't going to do that by just inviting them to our settler um square table you know they don't want to be there it's not safe for them in some cases to be there history has shown it's not safe they're not going to trust us so we have to build those relationships within those communities and decide what the environment is that they need for to be engaged with us and to work with us um, as Canadians not even just within the party it's um And that really has come from the opportunity that I've had to work with people from so many different backgrounds and so many different uh, worldviews to understand that there is value in what people bring to the table. And there's even value in speaking to those people who have lived in those small little silos in different parts of the world who don't want to look outside of it because their view is just as important as everybody else's. So um, I got to ask the question, would would a Green Party of Canada under Judy Green's leadership accept a candidate with a different view than the leader? With the Green Party, we are based on our six principles. So as long as candidates um, align with those principles and don't go against those principles, we don't whip votes. Uh, there are a few issues or few policies that that we do require um, 
uh, agreement on things like uh, a woman's right to choose is is a big one, and we need to be clearer on that. Um, because that was a big thing during the last election, it was, and it was there was and a was lot bonded. of current controversy around that. It was, it was, and unfortunately, well, you know. All of us have experienced this. I'm sure you have as well, Christopher, that you say something and something is taken um, out of context or you weren't able to finish your sentence or you got distracted by the dog and forgot what you were talking about. Um, and so some things can be taken out of context or um, taken in a different way than that what they were, were um, meant. So we have to be clearer on that. I absolutely agree. But a woman's right to choose is a woman's right to choose. It's enshrined in our Constitution. We're not opening that up. We have no reason to. Body autonomy is extremely important to Greens. And... Um, that is that on that subject. Uh, but uh, we don't like in, in the last um, election, one of the policies that came out uh, as talking points in the middle of the campaign was that temporary foreign workers were um, going to be the, the program was going to be scrapped. And in its place, uh, Greens wanted to offer a uh, a pathway to citizenship for these workers. Um, had I had the opportunity to sit in on discussions about that, I could have um, educated them on the the reality on the ground is that a lot of the temporary foreign workers, this works for them. They don't want to move their family here to live in Canada in the winter. The amount of money they make while they're here in, in the summer allows them to support their family back home, whether that's Jamaica or what have you. The ones I was speaking to were from Jamaica. Yeah. And and they weren't interested. They love Canada, but, but you know, they love Jamaica. That's their home. That's where their history is. That's where their family is. And this works. And... Yes, and I've seen that program mishandled and gamed um, both here in Nova Scotia and when I was working high tech uh, 20 years ago. So there are problems with the temporary foreign worker program, without a doubt. But I think we need to have uh, a little more middle ground on that. And as a Green, I get to say that. I don't have to say, yes, I agree with this 100%. I get to say we have questions and issues that need to be addressed. Um, and as a party, we need to do that. And I, and I, uh, and I think that's the issue with uh, politics today. Uh, some people are so disenfranchised from politics because they think when they're electing an MP, they're just getting a yes person. Someone exactly. is going to go to Ottawa and say yes to everything their leader says. And when it comes back to their riding, it's not going to be that way, correct? Exactly, exactly. And unfortunately, you could see that in, and I've had people comment um, during the six debates in um, in West Nova that we had during the, the, the general election, was that the liberal and the conservative um, contestants were talking points. Everything they answered was a talking point. It wasn't uh, exploring the the problem or equating it to the people who were in front of them, that community uniquely. It was the same talking point in all six debates across different regions in, in West Nova. And that really speaks to exactly that point, is that it's a one-way conversation. It's not looking at the, the realities of people on the ground in that area and that their experience might be a little bit different and might inform our policy to make it stronger. And that's one of the things I love about the Green Party um, process is that our 
our policies go through a consensus building process where they're challenged and they're they can be really challenged heatedly, which is very uncomfortable for people who are used to to top down. But I know to you know as long as people are are, are um, not uh, personally attacking anyone to allow people to have that conversation and have have um, their say because it really does inform. Uh, that policy to make it that much stronger. Now, I, I want to keep on talking about policy with you, but I want to, the, for the fairness of all the candidates, I'm keeping these to as close to an hour as possible. Um, Judy, I, I do want to ask this one last thing for you, and then you can, then I'll let you go here. Speak to Canadians. Speak to the Canadian who's listening right now. Why should they join the Green Party of Canada, and why should they support you? I'm, give, awesome. I'm giving you a few minutes. G- give your speech, and then we'll wrap up here. If you're tired of politics being done the way it's always been done, come and talk to us. Learn what we're about. Learn what our policies are, what the issues are that our policies um, solve. And we want to hear your voice. We want to hear uh, what the issues are that you're seeing on the ground and your ideas for fixing them. Because, you know, our frontline workers and people who are, are doing things in, in um, health care and in, and in uh, education, they're not being listened to. And I'm sure that's the, the case in many other areas as well. We want to hear what you see as the issues are and what your suggestions are for fixing them and moving forward. We want your voice to help us make better policies so that we can all share a better future for Canada. Awesome. Judy, um, I want to thank you very much for this. Um, for those who are listening, again, Judy's uh, uh, website and her uh, and uh, her website, her Facebook page, and uh, a link to join the Green Party of Canada will be in the show notes. So, Judy, I do want to take uh, this moment once again and thank you for doing this. Well, thank you for reaching out, Christopher. And I have one question for you. Go ahead. As somebody... As somebody who uses the middle initial in their name, Judy N. Green, yep. you also use uh, Christopher W. Brown. Yeah. I, I want to know why you, you use your middle initial. Uh, with, with with the name Chris Brown, you get referred to as the rapper a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and as you can tell, not a lot of similarities there. <laughs> there you go. There you go. What about yourself? <laughs> For myself, it's actually it's an homage to um, an aunt I never got to to know she was my uh, father's uh, younger sister and his favorite um, favorite sibling and she died when she was 11 and um, it wasn't until I came along that my grandma allowed the, her name to be to be gifted on one of the children so I use it in her honor well your story is a lot better than mine <laughs> <laughs> although Chris Brown come on <laughs> oh yeah um, for those who are listening and they've probably heard a few times uh, I ran in uh, a few elections one in Ontario municipally and one federally out here in Alberta and uh, municipal one out here, people would steal my signs because they thought they were, oh, it's Chris Brown, the rapper. So, oh, no. <laughs> so ever since then, it's Christopher W. Brown. There you go. There, yeah. See, we learn. We learn and we grow. Right? <laughs> exactly. Judy, again, I want to thank you very much for this. Awesome. Thank you so much, Chris. I've had a very enjoyable hour and I hope that your listeners enjoyed what we had to talk about. And once again, thank you to our guest for coming in and sitting down today. It was greatly appreciated. As I've said in the introduction, this podcast is about having a conversation. I learned a lot in this interview, and I really hope you did too. 
This podcast couldn't have happened without our listeners. From here in Alberta to across Canada and around the world, I want to take this moment and thank everyone for listening to this podcast. If you haven't already, be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. The links are in the show notes. Or visit our website at www.crossborderinterviews.ca. We will be back here next Saturday with another great episode of the Cross Border Interview Podcast. This podcast is produced and owned by Miranda Brown and Associates. I'm your host, Christopher Brown. Once again, have a safe and hopefully talkative week. Mm -hmm.